invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation 11. Last week we spent our time in Daniel, considering the context of the next several chapters of Scripture. Not necessarily Revelation 11 as we finish it today, but into Revelation 12. Understanding some things that we need to, some, some puzzle pieces as it were, right? That we need to have to, to fit into place if we're going to recognize the fullness of what the Bible is teaching us in Revelation. And I can certainly do a, a bunch of hopping back and forth, and I have been and will continue to do in any number of ways, but I think it was beneficial, I hope it was beneficial for us to head back to Daniel to walk through these things in, in a closer context. It's been many months since we uh, talked about Daniel in some other uh, contexts, and now we have this focus from Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Daniel 11, on what we call the 11th horn, this focus on a man who will be a blasphemous man, who will be an evil man, this focus upon his power that he has for three and a half years of time. And, of course, we connected that to the final three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel uh, and believe this man to be whom we call the Antichrist. As we mentioned a few minutes ago as we were singing together, we wrestle in this life against three primary enemies, as it were. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is what Scripture generally defines as the things against which we contend. Now, the world is not the people of the world, right? We've talked about that in Revelation. We've talked about that in Jeremiah just last week. The world is the influence of sin-sick culture, lives around us. It's the influence of the material things, the material gain of this life that calls for us to set aside our loyalty and our love for the Lord in order to pursue the things of this life instead. In fact, the people within the world are they're our mission field. That We love them. We strive for their best good. We pray for them. But we constantly oppose the temptation to live in a manner in which the material things of, of, of this temporary life override the spiritual. And the world appeals to a part of us which the Bible calls the flesh. We also call our sin nature. It's the part of us which is dominated by sin and craves those things which are not pleasing to God. This is a daily, a moment-by-moment battle. We are daily called to walk in the Spirit because if we're walking in the Spirit, the Bible says we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, Galatians 5.16. But if we're instead not walking in the Spirit, if we're grieving the Spirit, if we're quenching the Spirit, then the lust of the flesh will dominate our lives. And all of this is coordinated by our adversary, the devil. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We're going to talk about the devil quite a bit today, because that's where we find ourselves, particularly as it relates to Revelation 12. The devil, we also call him Satan, is a real being, a fallen angel, having all the characteristics of a person. He is real, he is active, he is seeking to destroy people. 
to cause them to live in opposition to all that is called God, to exalt His counterfeit kingdom. He is an adversary of which we should all have a healthy respect, if I may use the word fear. Not that we are afraid of the devil in the sense that we uh, are afraid of him and we tremble and, and we duck and, and hide, that sort of fear, but in that respect way, recognizing that though Satan is a defeated foe, we'll talk about this in our application, he is a powerful foe. His capacity to deceive, the lies, deceits, tricks, wiles that he has at his disposal to fool the world and the individuals in the world to following things other than the will of God is great. To that end, we must recognize Satan is a clever foe. He is a powerful foe. And we need to see him as such. He is also, however, a defeated foe. And we need to remember that. We are going to begin today finishing up Revelation 11. And we're going to get into the, the, the seventh trumpet, the third woe, right? We've gone through uh, the seven seals, each one opening and terrible things happening on the earth. And then the seven trumpets, we went through six as of last week, and seeing those seven trumpets sound and the terrible things that happen on earth throughout the scope of these seven trumpets, six trumpets to this point, the seventh trumpet is going to sound today, and of course, that is going to initiate the seven vile or bold judgments, but we're not going to get to those for a little while, because there are several things that, that are, are introduced surrounding the seventh trumpet. And the question that we need to ask from a time frame standpoint is, are these things being introduced because they happen at the point of the seventh trumpet? Or are they simply, are we taking kind of a parenthetical look at various elements within the scope of the revelation of Jesus Christ that don't take place at the time of the seventh trumpet? And that's not the primary focus of our time together. Our primary focus is going to be what is happening. As we pick up, we pick up in Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 15. We'll read verses 15 and 16, which tell us this. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God. So at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the seventh angel sounds... John hears great voices in heaven, and they declare Jesus' victory. And this is kind of important. It's, it's kind of neat, actually. Going into Revelation 12, we'll, we'll see Satan in a defeated state in Revelation 12 as it is. But it is another declaration of Christ's kingdom, of Christ's power, and of Christ's victory. A tremendous context to, to step into studying the, the role that Satan will play in these last days. This declaration... We've seen already on two previous points in the book where the 24 elders which were upon the thrones with their, with their 24 crowns, they fall upon their faces and they worship. And this is the third time that we've seen this happen in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ where these 24 elders fall upon the ground and they worship God. And the content of their worship has always been, it's been similar, effectively the same thing, but slightly different each time, and we see that again this time as well. We read in verses 17 the content of their worship. They're saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And so we see here the praise being, first extolling the character of Jesus Christ, that he is the one who is and was and will be. 
He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who began, the one who is, and the one who will end it all. And they praise Him because He is finally taking unto Himself His own power. God has always had the power to rule and reign. He's always had the power. But as we were studying in Tuesday nights, particularly in 2 Peter, recall we just finished our 2 Peter series on Tuesday nights, and now we're in a little bit of a, of a mini-series before we move on and continue into Philemon. And as we have, as we focused in on 2 Peter, recall that 2 Peter 3 reminded us that the reason why Satan dominates in this time, the reason why the world is filled with evil in this time and sickness and sorrow and death is not because God has abrogated his responsibility or because he doesn't have the power. It's not that God doesn't have the power, but rather the Lord has chosen in his love to limit his power, delaying his kingdom in order that as many women and men as possible might repent, might come to the knowledge of the truth, and so become beneficiaries of his power and of his kingdom. And so we read when we studied 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, Lord, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has not delayed His coming. He has not delayed the, the enactment or the assertion of His power because He is slack, because He is lazy, because He is negligent, or because He has failed in any way, shape, or form. God has delayed because He is patient. Because He wants everyone to be saved. He is delay, delaying His wrath in His long-suffering. And not everyone will be saved. But to that end, when every man stands before the judgment of God, one thing will be indisputable. That no man will have failed to enter the kingdom of God because he didn't have enough time. No man will have failed to enter the kingdom of God because he was not given a chance but only because men love darkness rather than light. Only because men have chosen the promises of Satan's kingdom and the priorities of this world above God's kingdom because the things of God's kingdom are unseen. They are yet to come. So the elders speak to this exact reality that they are praising God for He has taken His power. He is claiming His power. And how do they say, how do they, how, excuse me, how do they say the world responds to the Lord claiming his kingdom? We find out in verse 18. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, to the saints, to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. What we find here is a declaration of where the earth find its, finds itself in this time. God came. He is finally coming to claim His kingdom and His power. The nations were angry at Him for it. They resisted Him. Rather than submitting themselves, as we saw at the opening of the sixth seal, as we saw uh, throughout the trumpets, that the nations did not repent. Rather, they defied the Lord. They shook their fist at the Lord. They, said, they, they, they stood against the Lord. So God's wrath came upon them for this rebellion. And the time of the end has come. And with this end is judgment. Rewards given to the prophets and saints, small and great. I note that last phrase. And should destroy them which destroy the earth. Remember that the earth is God's creation. That God called upon men to populate the earth and to be stewards of the earth. 
And as we see how the heavens regard it, God has seen the nations of this world and what He has seen of them is that they have destroyed the earth. They have perverted God's desire and intent for this place and turned it into a place of evil and of violence. So we pick up in verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in His temple the ark of His testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So John sees the temple of God open in heaven. We've spoken of this temple already, right? To this point, we've seen the altar. We've seen an altar of incense. We've seen the fires on the altar. These are the things that we've seen of the temple in heaven. We, we went to Hebrews a little while ago, and we showed that the, the, the actual tabernacle that Moses and the people of Israel were intended to make on the earth was a picture of a heavenly tabernacle. And so we recognize somehow, in some way, and in some form, there is a heavenly tabernacle. And in this case, the heavenly tabernacle is opened the temple of God is opened in heaven, probably uh, indicating some opening of the curtains like we would think of with the old tabernacle where the curtains had to be opened. And within that temple, John saw the Ark of his Testament. This is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. And accompanied with this, lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake, great hail, chaos, thus reigning on earth. While in heaven, John sees this testimony of God's faithfulness. Now, this could bring us to an interesting place. I actually had someone ask just a few weeks ago on a Tuesday night, where is the Ark of the Covenant today? And that question seems, if we take this literally, grammatically, contextually, interpretatively, to be answered. But the Ark of the Testament is in heaven. No one's going to find it buried in some hole somewhere because it's in heaven. Now, there are some debates as to whether that is actually what's being said here. Is the Ark of the Covenant actually in heaven? Did God actually translate something that is physical from the earth into the heavenly sphere in order for it to be there? Possibly, possibly not. But that really isn't the focal point here. The point of us seeing the Ark of the Testimony in heaven is not to say, oh, that's where the Ark went. Oh, that's what happened to the ark. Because it wasn't in the temple when, when, uh, in, in, in the days of Jesus. It wasn't there at that time. Uh, it presumably was not there in the days of Ezekiel. So where is it? And that question, of course, has, has been one that many a person has tried to answer in any number of ways. But the point is this. The dealings on the earth are happening. Great, terrible earthquakes and thunders and lightnings and chaos is happening on earth. And simultaneously, what John is seeing is God's faithfulness to a covenant that he made with his people, the nation of Israel. It is another callback to the fact that what God is doing on the earth has direct relation to national Israel, has direct relation to his people. The New Testament church has no relationship to the Ark of the Covenant. Here we are reading about the Ark of the Covenant and it really has no relationship to us. The Ark of the Covenant had nothing to do with us. The Ark of the Covenant had within it the tables of, uh, of the law. It had to do with in it Aaron's rod that budded. It had within it the manna, that, that, uh, a bowl of manna from their wilderness journeys. 
These are things about God sustaining the nation of Israel. This is a covenant that God made with the nation of Israel, a physical covenant of blessings and cursings, which the New Testament makes very clear we are not under. And so the fact that the Ark of the Covenant is revealed here is once again a testament to the fact that God is dealing with the nation of Israel in this time, that God has recommenced his purpose with Israel, that God is working on Israel, that God is calling Israel back to himself, that God still has a plan for his people. And this, this vision is going to lead to another vision, another wonder that is also extremely Israel-centric. So we are getting very Israel-centric here. As a matter of fact, if I uh, were, were the translators, I would actually make uh, chapter 11, verse 18, the final verse in chapter 11. And I would put chapter 11, verse 19 with chapter 12. Uh, because I believe that the Ark of the Covenant in the heavens is actually the initiation of this next vision. The initiation of this next wonder. God is turning John's eyes toward God's relationship with Israel because now we're going to see this unique interaction uh, which will be a, a, a summary, a spanning of, of generations of an interaction between God, the nation of Israel, and God's enemy and our enemy, the devil. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says this, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with a child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. So John sees what he calls a great wonder in heaven. It is the first of several wonders or signs that he sees indicating future events. They are somewhat categorized thematically, so we would wonder here if they're supposed to be a part of the seventh trumpet or not. I believe that they are, just based upon the way it plays out, but there is reason to, to debate about that. And this first wonder begins the first of seven persons that will be introduced to between chapters 12 and 15, which are very important to the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he sees a woman, and he describes her as clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and with a crown of 12 stars upon her head. The symbolism points us to the identity of this woman. She is clothed in the sun, the moon is under her feet. I'm going to make a connection here, which may or may not be the case. But what we're going to find as we walk through the text indisputably is that this woman is the nation of Israel. This woman is the nation of Israel. Now, interestingly enough, uh, with the whole blood moon thing that we had happening this year, uh, there was a lot of talk about this woman uh, having to do with a, a constellation and a time when the constellation aligns with the moon and the stars in such a way. And they say, ah, this is, this is that vision. This is the end of the world, that sort of a thing. And so people began to take what was happening in the heavens and trying to align it with what's being said here in Revelation chapter 12. But here's the thing. Revelation 12 explains very, very clearly what this woman is with a crown of 12 stars, with the moon under her feet, and with the sun. This is Israel, and we'll see that indisputably over the next several verses. So that being the case, we don't need to go seeking another sense. We don't need to go looking for the stars to find stars aligning to say that the end of the world is nigh, because that is clearly not what's, what is happening here. As 
this vision is, is made very clear. So we have this woman. In Genesis chapter 37, recall Joseph is a young man. Joseph is, is the second youngest son of Israel, of Jacob. And Joseph is the favored son. He's been given the coat of many colors. He is a man of tremendous integrity. And Joseph has a couple of dreams. And he tells these dreams to his brother, brothers, and his brothers hate him for these dreams. The second of these dreams we read about in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. The Bible says, He dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. So here Joseph sees his father as the sun, his mother as the moon, his brothers as 11 stars, and they are all bowing down to him as the 12th star. Uh, now, this, of course, actually happens, right? We see this when he gets to Egypt. He gets to Egypt. He becomes the second highest in command in Egypt, and his family ends up um, effectively being under him. So this has a legitimate prophetic revelation, but I would see this verse and say that it's no stretch at all then when we see a woman with 12 stars as a crown draped in the sun with the moon at her feet to see this as a link, particularly after we just saw the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, to Israel. I don't believe it's a stretch at all. For us to see this as a picture of Israel in a very real way. Now, I said that that link is is there, but it will, as I mentioned, become irrefutable as we continue. So this woman is pregnant and she is in the process of giving birth to a child. That's the final thing that we see here in verse 2. She is crying in travail, in birth, in the pains of childbearing. At this point, another person comes into play. And we read of him in verses 3 and 4. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. So this second sign, this second wonder in the heavens was a great red dragon. This dragon has seven heads and ten horns, and the seven heads have seven crowns upon their heads, one on each head, presumably. Now, the, teven, the, the ten horns thing is very important, and, and you should already be thinking back to last week's message, right? Daniel 7, the great beast, the fourth beast that came out of the sea, a terrible beast that Daniel could not describe, but he had on his head ten horns. So now we see this, this dragon, this red dragon, this wonder, and he has on his head ten horns, and he has seven heads. So not only does he have the ten horns, that would be, we would presume, these ten kingdoms of the last days as we speak of them, but he has seven heads, which says that even apart from these ten kings, the seven, of course, being the divine number of completion or perfection, Indicating that he is in control of the kingdoms of this world. Indicating that he has ultimate power over, dominion over the world system. And John watches as his tail takes one third of the stars of heaven and casts them to earth. Now we haven't been entirely 
necessarily consistent in our interpretation of the stars as it's related to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Recall I mentioned this before, that we've seen a star fall from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit that opened up that pit. We've seen some stars fall from heaven that we know are angelic beings, and yet there was that time in Revelation, or excuse me, yeah, Revelation 6 at the sixth seal, where we said that the stars falling from heaven are literal stars falling from heaven. And I said, maybe that's not the case. Maybe those are not literal stars falling from heaven, because the stars... Everywhere else in the book of the Revelation indicate not masses of rock or anything of the sort, but rather angels of some sort, angelic beings or demons. In this case, we would certainly see that to be the case, that, the, the, that this dragon, his tail, draws one-third of the stars of heaven and casts them to earth. And what we're looking at is kind of an overview of the dealings of, of, of general history as it relates to Satan and Israel. Israel's distinctive feature is that she bears a child, that child being Messiah. Satan's distinctive features, the, the great red dragon, as we'll see in verse 9, he'll be called explicitly Satan, is that he sinned and he caused other angels to follow him in his rebellion. This is where we would get the idea that a full one-third of the angels of heaven followed Satan in his rebellion. This is, again, an interpretive choice that we make. This is not clear, cut, and dry stuff. But this is where we get the idea that Satan's demonic horde, those that follow him, of those that follow him, it's a contingency of about one-third of all of the created angels that God created because of this verse where the Bible says that the dragon's tail cast one-third of the stars of heaven onto the earth. There are other interpretations of this, but this is how we would interpret it. So, Satan, this dragon, excuse me, he's not called Satan yet, but this dragon stands before the woman as she is giving birth, and his intent is that when this child is born, he is going to devour this child. He is going to kill this child. He is going to destroy this child immediately. Verses 5 and 6 as we continue with the tale, with the vision. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So he, this child was not devoured. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand, two hundred and threescore days. So this woman brings forth a man-child. And notice the identity of the man-child, that this woman with the twelve stars in her crown and with the, the sun as her, her clothing and the moon under her feet. Notice the, the description of this man-child, that he would be the one to rule all nations with a rod of iron. This is Messiah. Has to be Messiah. It is the Old Testament promise of Messiah, that he would rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is Jesus. So the woman is clothed in the sun, moon at her feet, crowned with twelve stars, brings forth a child king to rule all nations. Can there be any doubt that John is looking at the, the, the history of Israel bring, being the vessel through whom Messiah comes? Being the vessel through whom Messiah is born? And, of course, the Bible says that Satan was not able to destroy this man-child. Rather, he was caught up into heaven. We would recognize that to be the resurrection, right? Satan attempts to destroy the man-child, but the man-child is resurrected from the dead. That would be Jesus, and is brought and caught up into heaven for a time. So now he is in the heavens. 
And now we focus in on the woman. Now, the, the focus was actually not Jesus in this. The focus was not Messiah. The Messiah was there to help us understand that this woman that has the 12, a crown of 12 stars and, and is clothed in the sun, moon under her feet, that this woman is Israel. The focus is on the devil and the woman. This woman flees to the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. We have our first timetable within this chapter and it is an important one, right? right? One thousand two hundred and three score being sixty. Right? A score is twenty. Twenty times three is sixty. One thousand two hundred and sixty days. One thousand two hundred and sixty days is forty-two months. Prophetically, you divide by 30 because every prophetic month is 30 days. 42 months and 42 months divided by 12 months in a year is three and a half years, right? Now, all of these should be entirely ringing the bells of last week as we talked about the time, times, and half a time, and the 42 months and the 1,260 days of Antichrist and his power over the saints of the Most High, right? So now we have this woman who is Israel fleeing into the wilderness for three and a half years. We know that Antichrist has power over the saints of the Most High for three and a half years. He will make war with the saints of the Most High for three and a half years. We're seeing all of these things happening and we're seeing timetables intermesh. Verses 7 through 9 of chapter 12. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So this time, John sees war in heaven. We're going back and forth, right? First we see the woman, then we see the dragon, then we see the woman, now we're seeing the dragon again. And this dragon wars against Michael the archangel. Everywhere where Michael the archangel comes up in the scriptures, he is related directly to Israel. As a matter of fact, if you recall last week in Daniel 12, we saw that when the, Daniel 12 described Michael the archangel standing up, he says that Michael the archangel, the one that fights for God's people, for Israel. He is the one who fights for Israel. And so now Michael fights with Satan and his angels. The, Michael the archangel fighting with the dragon. And it is here that the dragon, the Bible says, does not prevail and he is no longer given a place in heaven. He is banned. He is cast out. Here we find some connections. First, this is the only place in Scripture that literally and definitively connects the Satan, or the, the Satan, the serpent, in Genesis with Satan. Nowhere else in Scripture will you actually see that connection definitively defined, but here in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fascinating, is it not? Now, all throughout Jewish history, they understood the serpent to be Satan, to be the devil. But we don't see the connection definitively made until the revelation of Jesus Christ, where we find that the serpent is Satan, the devil, the one who deceives the whole world. Satan was there to cause the fall of man, and we find that at the end of the world, Satan is still here fighting for his kingdom. So John sees as his angels are cast out of heaven and as he is as well. 
Now we know that Satan generally has had access to heaven. We know this all the way back in the book of Job, where the Bible says that the sons of God came before the Lord and among them was Satan, who was accusing Job before the Lord. Satan had been running to and fro throughout the earth, he says, and he came to accuse Job before the Lord. And so we know that Satan has had some access to the throne of God. He's had no power there. He, he has not been there as a, as a, a, a fixture. He has been a, a guest, as it were, into the throne room of God. But he's been allowed there. Well, at this point, that stops. He is no longer allowed into heaven. He is no longer allowed before the throne of God. And this causes Satan to recognize that time is getting very short. He knows that this is going to happen, and when it does happen, this is him understanding there's not much time left. We continue in verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation. I'm sorry, I'm off here. There we go. Uh, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. So as the devil is cast out of heaven for good, we hear a voice in heaven saying, now is come salvation. Now the kingdom of God has come. The same thing that the 24 elders proclaimed that God is finally taking the power of his kingdom. And notice the further description of Satan or the devil here. He is described as the accuser of our brethren, which accused them all before God day and night. What Satan did with Job, Satan does with us all. He accuses us before God. He seeks to levy upon us guilt and shame. He highlights our guilt. But the saints of the Most High. They have overcome Satan. They have come out from underneath his deceptions. They have been delivered from his accusations, not by their own strength, but by the blood of the Lamb, by his testimony. That when Satan would seek to accuse me before the Father, God looks down and he sees the blood of Jesus Christ and he says that accusation won't stick. It's under the blood. That when Satan would stick to seek to shame and to guilt me and to condemn me, I can say that condemnation, that shame and that guilt does not stick because I am under the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of the Lamb has invalidated the accusations of Satan against the saints of the Most High. By accepting the saving grace of Jesus Christ, living lives of obedience and righteousness even unto death, they have overcome the wicked one. We have overcome the wicked one. And in doing so, the wicked one is a defeated foe. We are simply reading of the time when his defeat is made final. For many of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history, this determination to follow Christ, to live under the blood of the Lamb, has, has come at a high price. We see that at the end of the, uh, verse 11. That those who have followed, who have placed themselves under the blood of the Lamb, who have followed the word of Christ's testimony, they love not their lives unto the death. No price so high as the price that Jesus paid on the, pro on the cross, most certainly. No price then is so high that it is not worth the glory which is to be revealed in us for us to follow 
the Lamb who has shed His blood for us. Well, none of this makes Satan happy. That he is cast out of heaven does not make him happy. That we see people getting saved, being brought under the blood of the Lamb in our time, does not make him happy. Verses 12 and 14, we read this. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. So the heavens are called to rejoice. Rejoice that, that the dragon, the devil, has been cast out of heaven, but then they simultaneously proclaim a woe upon the earth. And notice here, as this woe comes upon the earth, we see a woe upon the inhabitants both of the earth and of the sea. Now that could mean just the animals along with the people, but once again, remember how we've been kind of tracing this possibility that... Uh, that the sea represents the Gentile nations and the earth represents something like Israel or, or whatever the case may be. This is another one of those verses that people look to and they say, well, they're inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. What does that mean? We're going to see next week another instance where we might say, wow, I wonder if there's something more to it than just topography. And this is one of those reasons, again, why that is the place. The case. So a woe is placed upon all those, particularly who do not believe in this time. Not only is the wrath of God being poured upon them, but now Satan is upon the earth and he is going to double down on his wrath. And that wrath is going to be directed, notice where, notice where, he sees that he is cast to the earth. He knows he has but a short time. So he's going to persecute the woman which brings forth the man child. Now, who is that woman? That's Israel. Who brought forth the man-child? That's the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, national Israel, brought forth Messiah. That was the promise. That is what God promised all the way back to Abraham, that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, right? That Messiah would come through his line, and it came through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and it came through Judah, and it came through David, and then it came through Mary and Joseph. That's Messiah. And so he is going to turn his sights upon this woman and persecute her. Verses 15 through 17. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we see a distinction here between the woman and the remnant of the woman's seed here. The devil casts a flood upon the woman, it, uh, the Bible says here, indicating that He's going to uh, seek to destroy her with all of his might, with everything that he has. Is there, again, a distinction here between him throwing water at her and the earth swallowing up this water? Possibly. Uh, again, if we're talking about the land of Israel and the Gentile worlds or, or the nation of Israel and the Gentile worlds as uh, respectively the nation of Israel being the land or the earth and the Gentile worlds being the sea, then there might be uh, something to that there. We don't really know. But one way or another, what we do know is that Satan is going to pour out all of his fury upon 
this woman upon the nation of Israel. But Israel will find help. Israel will be protected at least in part in these attempts. And here we find that there's only a remnant left. He goes after Israel and then he actually is focusing only upon a remnant of the seed of the woman, those that bear the testimony of Jesus Christ, the believing remnant from the woman who is Israel. For deeper insight into what this might mean, I'm going to take you in just a moment to Zechariah 13. I think we see a correlation between what's happening here as described in Revelation 12 and what happens in Zechariah 13 that I would like to point out to. As with many elements of prophecy, uh, there are links that may or may not be entirely valid, but I want to show it to you anyway. In Zechariah 13, there's a prophecy of destruction which begins with destruction upon the nation, which begins with fountains opening up against the nation. And we see something that we haven't necessarily seen in history the way it's described in Zechariah 13. There have been many terrible, terrible attempts to destroy the people of Israel. But I don't know that we've seen one quite as Zechariah 13 describes it. This is what we read in Zechariah 13. In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So it's a fountain against them because of their sin. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and and the unclean spirits to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father uh, and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live. For thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he hath prophesied. Neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I am no prophet. I am an husbandman. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass... That in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but a third part shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. So we read of a judgment of God upon Israel in this time. Described in verse 1 as a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem uh, for an uncleanness and for sin. God promises that in that day He would finally and completely remove from them all idolatry. That people who would uh, have previously claimed to be prophets, previously claimed to have some sort of representation of the Lord, would say, no, 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 not me. I, I am not one of those. I'm not a false prophet. They would completely renounce any hidden dishonesty or darkness. And verse 8 tells us that within this time, 
two-thirds of the people would be cut off and killed, and one-third of the people would remain. And that one-third would be brought through the fire, would be refined as silver is refined, as gold is tried, and then that one-third, that remnant, would call upon the name of the Lord, and He would hear them, and He would acknowledge them as His people, and they would acknowledge the Lord as His God, as their God. So there is this removal of idolatry and a wholesale turning of the Lord for a one-third remnant of the nation of Israel. This is not necessarily something that we have seen within the scope of history as far as history records it. And so it's quite possible, particularly as it begins in the same manner of the Lord uh, speaking or invoking this idea of a fountain opening up upon them, it is quite possible that what we are speaking of here in Zechariah 13 is what is going to happen in the final three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel as it relates to Satan seeking to destroy the seed of the woman and particularly the remnant of the seed that follows Jesus Christ. Before we apply this morning, let me kind of summarize what we have read and and where we've gone with this this morning. The chapter begins with an introduction to the characters. In order to introduce the woman, God shows her as delivering Messiah. This makes it clear that the woman is Israel and that Messiah is Jesus Christ. In order to introduce Satan, God shows a dragon and connects that dragon with the kingdoms of this world through seven heads and ten horns. That connects this dragon to having power over the kingdoms of this world and particularly having power over the ten final kingdoms as we see them in Daniel chapter 2, in Daniel 7, right? In, in Daniel 9, in Daniel 11. God also shows, thus, an attempt to destroy Messiah early, but Messiah is preserved. He's taken into heaven. That was the end of the 69th week, right? The end of the 69th week, Messiah is cut off. Twice in this chapter, we find in the same context, the first it's stated, the second time given in context, the woman flees into the wilderness to a place prepared by God and is fed by God for 1,260 days, For 42 months, for, as verse 14 said, a time and times and half a time. When we read that, we have to connect it to the power that is given to the 11th horn in Daniel chapter 7 for a time and times and half a time. We we, we can't just ignore those connections between the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ and Daniel chapter 7. We read about Satan fighting with Michael, the archangel, and being cast out of heaven, recognizing time is short, understanding this, pouring all of his anger against the nation of Israel and particularly against the remnant that believes in Jesus Christ. And this will be for a time, a times, and half a time where God will need to protect that remnant lest they be destroyed. I hope that these connections are very clear to you between what we talked about last week in Daniel and what we're talking about this week as we get into this timetable of 1,260 days and time, times, and half a time. I want to take you to one more passage. We've read it several times, but I want to read it one more time for us here to kind of set this again in perspective. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. We know that that's going to happen at the midpoint, right? Three and a half year mark. We know it. Daniel 9 says in the midst of the week that, that 
the prince that shall come will break his covenant with Israel. When, he, when you see this, Jesus says, then let them which are in Judea flee into the mountains. Let, them, let, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the uh, field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day, for then shall be great tribulations such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time no, nor shall ever be, nor ever shall be, excuse me. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Matthew 24, the foremost teaching directly by Jesus Christ on the events of the end of the world. He speaks in verse 15 about the abomination of desolation, that three and a half year mark in the tribulation. After this occurrence, Jesus calls upon those who understand to flee Judea and Jerusalem. We connect this to Revelation 12, right? Satan is cast out of heaven. His fury and his indignation pour against the woman, and the woman flees for how long? 1,260 days. The woman hides for how long? A time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years that this woman is fleeing. Three and a half years that God is hiding this woman from Satan. Three and a half years... That Antichrist has been given power over, the eleventh horn has been given power over the saints of the Most High to war with them. Three and a half years into the 70th week of Daniel, the abomination of desolation takes place. It is not the only interpretation, but it seems fairly clear, does it not, how this plays out. And this is why we stand where we stand on the timing of the events in the tribulation. It seems fairly clear that it'll be around the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel that this war takes place in heaven, that Satan is cast out, that he pours out all of his fury when he recognizes time is short. We're going to see next week that Satan is going to empower the Antichrist. We read about it in 2 Thessalonians this morning briefly in Sunday school as well. He will empower Antichrist. Antichrist will then perform the abomination of desolation, doing something extremely dramatic and then putting all of his efforts as the one who leads this 10 kingdom coalition, putting all of his efforts into destroying the woman and her seed, and particularly the remnant of the woman. And this is why we generally place a lot of these events and the seventh trumpet around the midpoint of the tribulation. This is what we see happening here. The Antichrist, Satan's fury, will be poured out for three and a half years, that during those three and a half years, that is the time where God will be preserving his people from the wrath of Satan. Within the context of the seventh trumpet here, we see events that seem to so closely resemble the events surrounding the abomination of desolation and its aftermath that there's pretty great confidence in our circles regarding the general timetable, and this is why. Are there other interpretive possibilities? As I mentioned, sure there are. But in in my mind, this timetable just makes sense. There's too many connections that just fall into place for us to ignore it. The dragon is cast out of heaven. He initiates his plan of fury. 
beginning with the abomination of desolation, where, according to Zechariah 13, if we connect that passage to it, he's going to destroy a full two-thirds of the nation of Israel. The other one-third will flee, recognizing immediately that the prophecies of the Messiah have come to pass. Perhaps they have heard those prophecies through the ministry of the two witnesses, which we might assume witnessed during the first half of the, the, the first 42 months of the tribulation. Um, perhaps not. This one-third of the nation will be kept safe by God where Zechariah 13 tells us that they will be brought through the fire, they will be refined as silver and gold, and then they will call upon the name of the Lord and make the Lord their God. Thus fulfilling what Paul says in Revelation 11 about the end times, that all Israel shall be saved. The remnant will be saved. This is reasonable, this makes sense, it fits nicely, and for all of these reasons it has become, and rightfully so, the conviction of dispensationalists that this timetable makes the most sense. It's the most consistent with the teachings of the Word of God as we put Daniel, Matthew, and the revelation of Jesus Christ together, which is what we're trying to do here. Now, it's not too often that we dwell specifically on our adversary, the devil, but that's what we're going to do this morning. Two points of application as we close. Point number one, let me remind you of a couple of things about your adversary, the devil. Number one, Satan has the world under his deception. We read in verse 9 of the identity of the dragon as that old serpent called the devil and Satan. The word devil is the word which literally means accuser. And the word Satan is a word which means adversary. So he is called our accuser, and our adversary. Devil means accuser. Satan means adversary. These names are descriptive names. This fallen angel, this great dragon, he is the accuser of the brethren. He is the great adversary, not just of the just, but of all mankind. He is, we find in verse 9, the being which has deceived the whole world. So let us talk about the relationship between Satan and the world for a moment. And we read this concept found in many different passages of Scripture. We read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The Bible says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So we find that Satan is called the God of this world and that he is responsible for bringing about the doctrines, the false doctrines that blind the minds of this world, that convince them that what they want is what's best for them, that convince them that following their flesh is what's best for them, that convince us, may I just use the word us instead, that convince us that the, that the things of this world are worth giving up the things of the world to come. He is the deceiver of the brethren. And again, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, And the servants of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who hath taken captive who are taken captive by him at his will. The snare of the accuser, that he is accusing them and they are falling under the snare, living in guilt, living in shame, living in the deceits of thinking that this world has something to offer you that will actually make you happy. It does not. 
It does not. Satan has this world caught up in his deception, and this deception is strong. Every week, several people from this body of believers and many people all around the country sit across from men and women in jails who have been convinced that the promises of this world, that money and pleasure and ease are the most worthwhile things to pursue in life. Every week, you interact with men and women. Maybe it's neighbors. Maybe it's family members. They're all around us who have been convinced that the things of this life matter the most and that they're going to get the things of this life and enjoy the things of this life at the expense of the life to come, and it just does not matter. This is a deception. This is a deception. We live surrounded by people who think that the things of this life are the end in and of themselves, and it is absolutely false. It's a deception. They live for what they can get now. They live for the promises of today. All around the world, there are billions of men and women and children who worship false gods in the name of some idea of heaven, which is absolutely false. It's a deception. These gods have any number of names. False gods which give them power. False gods which give them prosperity. False gods which demand from them their resources. They give their lives. They give their health. They give everything to please these false gods. And at the end of their life, they will find that it was all for naught. It was emptiness. They are deceived. All of these little gods, all of these false gods, all of the names that I have, they are little more than avatars of the God of this world, of Satan himself, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Satan has been making grand promises to mankind that the riches of his kingdom are worth any sacrifice. That if we will follow Satan, if we will follow his way, a do what thou wilt, a a follow your heart kind of living, as we pursue that way, that somehow that's going to bring to us what we want. But you know what? There is this great reality check that happens in the life of every man where no matter how much he's tried to deceive himself this reality check makes him understand that the promises of Satan's kingdom lead to emptiness and that reality check is death you can follow Satan's kingdom and Satan's desires and this do what I will live, uh, live for today eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die type idea, but at the end there's always for tomorrow we die. And then what? Then what happens? Then all of this life that you've lived on credit, building up for ourselves the pleasures of this life at the expense of the rewards of the life to come, it comes due. And we have nothing to show for it. All the way back in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan has promised mankind liberation from the so-called oppression of his creator, God. That we have this God who is holding us back from the limitlessness of our potential. And if only Christianity didn't exist, and if only the Judeo-Christian worldview didn't exist, and if only God didn't exist, then imagine what we would be as a civilization today, and it is such a lie. God 
who has imposed upon the creation the expectations only of his holy character. Eve, who was duped into believing these promises and she partook. Adam, who saw these promises, desired them and willingly and knowingly rebelled. And ever since that day, the lies of Satan have been operating and man has been continuing to pursue them. And in every generation, the lies of Satan have blinded the eyes of men and women, convincing them that the best things are the things of this world, convincing them that he is God, though he is no God, convincing them that he should be obeyed, and it is all a lie. It's all a lie. Now make no mistake, we sing that song, this is my father's world. This is our father's world. This is God's world. Before the time, God has allowed Satan to be the God of this world. Satan has authority. But the things of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, that's Satan's playground. That's under his authority, but they will all pass away. They are all going away. You can't take them with you. You can't keep them. But the things that we do for Christ, these things are eternal. And on that note, I'd like to go back to 2 Corinthians 4 for a moment. We read a moment ago verses 3 and 4. I want to go back to verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, excuse me, I'm behind one again. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Because Satan has blinded the minds of this world, there is an urgency upon those who bear the light to be light bringers. If we don't tell people, who will? If we, the ones who bear the light, aren't telling people that they are walking in darkness, who will? Should we leave it up to chance that one day maybe, just maybe, they'll turn on the radio to the right station? That maybe, just maybe, one day they'll inadvertently click the wrong link on YouTube and it'll happen to be a person preaching the gospel? That maybe, just maybe, one day they'll get a bug in them to to open the Bible and they'll open the Bible to a passage and read the gospel and be saved? Are are we, do we really just, are we going to leave it to that? If those that bear the light aren't the ones shining the light, then how does the light shine? If our gospel is hid, it's hid to the lost. And that brings us to the other element of this. If our lives reflect the hidden things of dishonesty, if we handle the word of God deceitfully, if we fail to manifest the truths of God in our lives, if we live in feigned faith, if we live in the kind of life where we say, thus saith the Lord, but we do, thus saith me, then where's the light? How can the blinded minds of the lost ever see the difference between the light and the darkness if that difference does not come through us? If that difference is not seen in you, if your neighbors don't see that difference in you, if Buffalo, Minnesota does not see that difference in us. If we don't live and tell and reach, then who will? 
Satan has this world under a deep deception. But the power of the gospel can soften the heart of stone. The power of the gospel can cause the blind to see. And what did Jesus demonstrate while on this earth? The lame walked. The blind saw. The demonically possessed had their sin-ravaged lives put back together. And in each case, as Jesus brought about the physical manifestations of what we would do spiritually in the hearts of those with whom we interact, he looked at them and he said, now go and sin no more. Jesus was demonstrating the power of the gospel and this is the exact power that we need to be demonstrating to the world around us. Number one, sin has the world under his deception. Number two, Satan, excuse me, Satan has the world under his deception. Number two, Satan is still powerful but is already defeated. For the unbeliever, there's no power. He's under the deceits of Satan. There's no power to contend against the great accuser of, uh, of, of mankind. But for you who are in Christ, who rest under the power of the blood of the Lamb, Satan is a defeated foe. What we read about today is a time when the accuser of the brethren can no longer accuse at all. When the access of Satan to the throne of heaven will be cut off. When Michael and his angels defeat Satan and his angels. This day is coming. Satan is as good as defeated already. And yet we are warned in 1 Peter 5, 8, as we read at the beginning of our time together. Be sober, be vigilant for your adversary. The devil is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. Satan is looking for the weak. He is looking for the distracted. He is looking for those who are wandering from the word of truth. He is hoping to devour them in the evil of their sins. And so we need to be vigilant. We must understand that Satan is a defeated foe, but he is not impotent in his defeat. He is powerful. I was talking to a young man in the jail two weeks ago. And he grew up a Baptist church background, went to Christian school through eighth grade. And um, he was put into public school beginning in ninth grade. And he said that, that, that when, he had, when he got into that environment where there were more temptations and such, uh, the world allured him greatly. And by the time he was 20, he was uh, addicted to heroin. And uh, at the time I was talking to him, he was 28 years old. And I walked through the gospel with him. And as I walked through the gospel with him, he, gave, he, he knew it. He knew the gospel. He knew the word of God. He understood it. We walked through salvation by grace through faith. He understood these things. Whether or not he is a true believer, of course, is between him and God alone. But the fact is he, he knew, at least intellectually, the gospel. He had all that knowledge at his disposal. And I looked at him and I said, well, if you know these things and if you, you, you claim to be a believer, I said, what happened? What happened? Because here he is, sitting across from me, in jail. He's been to any number of treatments. He's been in and out of jail for the past eight years. He's addicted to heroin. I said, what happened? He said this. He said, I got distracted. I stopped caring about what was true, and I did what I thought I wanted. And I realized, he said, it's not what I wanted after all. Eight years later. It's not what I wanted after all. He said, and now I'm sitting in the cell trying to tell all of these other guys that it's not what you want. Trying to tell my friends from high school, this isn't really what we want. And he's 28 years old and he's finally realizing that life is passing him by because he's pursuing what he 
thought he wanted. That's the deceit of Satan. And this is a young man who grew up, presumably, I mean, as far as my chat with him, he he knew his stuff. I saw, sat across from a young man who had been devoured by Satan. Because he fell for the deceits of the world, which Satan has erected explicitly for that purpose. To this end, I exhort you, don't underestimate the power of Satan to deceive, to lead astray, to cause one who does understand the things of the word of God to be overthrown in their faith by the allures of this world. And as I say that, allow me to remind you as well that Satan is defeated. I don't want to give a bleak picture. On the cross, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. The power that Satan has exists among those who either are outside of Christ or in Christ, only those who allow him to have it. So James instructs the church, and he says this in James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Align with God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy into heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you. He shall lift you up. It's, It's in the scriptures. The promise is there. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Humble yourself before the Lord and the Lord will raise you up. Satan is a defeated foe and on the authority of the word of God, those who will walk in the spirit, those who will submit themselves to God, those who will resist the devil, the devil will flee from you. Jesus is our great example of this, of course. 40 days and 40 nights fasting and praying in the wilderness, at the end of which Satan comes to tempt him. Satan tempts him with three different temptations. All three times, Jesus quotes the scriptures saying that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God shall he live. He saw the word of God as more important than the desires of his flesh. He resisted the devil. He submitted himself to God and the devil fled from him. So too can we. If we resist the devil, if we submit ourselves to God, if we hold his word as precious, if we say, I don't always get it, I don't even always want it, but I know that this is best. I know that this is best. I know that the way that the word of God tells me to live is best. See, because the way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble, right? Proverbs 4.19, that's our memory work for this month. But you are not as those that walk in darkness. Because you, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's the condition, you have the light of life. How are you doing today? We can't resist the devil through willpower. Satan is powerful. We can't resist the devil through determination. Satan is very determined as well. But the blood of Jesus Christ... Through His blood. And it's always been this way. We can overcome. How are you doing today? First, are you under the blood? Have you come to that place in your life where you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Where you've recognized that you are a sinner and you are hopelessly separated from God and there's nothing that you can do to bring yourself into a right relationship with God. God is holy. You are not. You have been separated from God 
through your sin. You can't earn your way to God. You can't work your way to God. You can't buy your way to God. Religion cannot bring you to God. You can't be baptized. You, know, you can't baptize your way toward God. You can't, you can't take communion to get yourself to God. These are not the things that bring you to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. For by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, are ye saved through faith? And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Jesus Christ died on the cross to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He died on the cross to bear your sin, to bear your shame, to take the things that you have done against a holy God and to bear them in himself. And that if you will accept this and only this, repenting of your dead works and putting your faith in God and proclaiming that there is nothing that you can do under any circumstance to get yourself right to God, to get yourself into heaven, but only to trust that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient to save you from your sins, that if you will do that, if you will call out unto the Lord, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've not done that today, would you make today the day where you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? where you acknowledge that you are a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, where you acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but he didn't just die, did he? Very importantly, he rose again the third day. See, because without the resurrection, we are hopeless. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then what hope do we have of eternal life? But he is risen from the dead. He has become the first fruit of them that slept. Christian, You've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. But maybe Satan is having his way with you. Maybe it's some element of, of life uh, materially. Maybe it's uh, a lust or a desire. Maybe it's uh, some element of the world. It's materialism that has you and, and you just love things and you pursue things to, to any end and you put things above God. Or, or, or maybe um, it's... Something a little bit more obvious. There's some, um, some besetting sin, some fornication or uncleanness, some drunkenness or whatever the case may be that, that is holding you and, and that the deceits of this world have ensnared you. Or maybe it's something extremely subtle. Maybe it's rebellion against your parents or against your husband. Maybe it's a, uh, a refusal to submit. Maybe it's just anger that is in your life and there is this thing that is holding you down. The only thing holding you there is your refusal to submit to the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be single-minded toward the Lord. Pursue him at all cost and at any cost. So what is the thing that is alluring you? Why is it in your life? If it's competing with the Lord, why is it in your life? How are you doing today? Satan is powerful, and we need to know that. We need to be sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, is walking about seeking whom he may devour. But here is the thing. He is also a defeated foe. And we read about his final the, the final mark of his defeat is he, he's still on the earth at this time in Revelation 12. He won't be cast in the lake of fire for some time. But we read about the final nail in his coffin. Can we put it that way today? That's not here yet, though. 
He's still accusing the brethren. He's still there. He's still powerful. Let's be vigilant, sober. Let's be determined that we will resist the devil. Let's cleanse our hearts. Let's purify ourselves. Let's submit ourselves, humble ourselves before the Lord so that he can lift us up. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.